We're coming up on Easter, and in preparation for Easter, often a church does a Lent series, and uh, I'm going to do that this year with you. And uh, I'm going to preach four messages between now and Easter. I have, we have a missionary next Sunday. So I'm going to do four messages between now and Easter. And I'm going to make them from the fourfold gospel. What is a fourfold gospel? Well, the Christian and Missionary Alliance has historically emphasized four specific areas of the gospel that we love. Jesus is our Savior. That's kind of what every church emphasizes. Jesus is our sanctifier. That living a life that honors God comes through Jesus. That power and that ability comes through him. Jesus is our healer. That he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. And Jesus is our coming king as well. Now that's normally the order you hear them in. But that coming king aspect of the fourfold gospel is really the thing that helps us be as missionary-minded as we tend to be. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles, if you'd open them first to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There is a version Bible app event for this. So if you have the version Bible app on your phone and you have data, you can go there, click the little menu, and then click on uh, the events near you, and you'll find the, the text right along there that you can follow. So starting on Thursday, we're going to have this fine-looking missionary couple that are pictured on the screen before you right now, Jeff and Heather. Jeff and Heather have served God in Southeast Asia, specifically in a country called Cambodia, literally for decades. And they know their stuff. They are good at what they do. They have been there long enough that they are actually now working with the children of the people they first worked with when they arrived there. And they teach people. They teach church leaders they teach people to be church leaders in places like Kampong Chan and Phnom Penh. They teach them how to pastor churches and how to win people to Christ. They have, in, those, in that faculty and in that facility, they have pastored or taught almost a hundred people to be church leaders. Think of that. A hundred new church plants potentially because of this couple and the people that have helped them in Cambodia. That's just an amazing thing. But that's not all they do. They look around and they see the felt needs in their community and they see that there's a terrible problem with alcohol addiction and addiction to other drugs there. And so they have opened an addiction recovery center where they share the hope of Christ and the power of God to deliver and to heal those who are suffering in that capacity. Frankly, I think their lives must be fascinating. I mean, how cool would it be to be involved in that kind of thing. I can't wait to hear their stories. By the way, I've had a part in their story. So have you. If you have part of their story, you are a part of their story because you've engaged in the ministry. Think about it for a minute. We've never gone to Cambodia. But rather, you and I are part of a movement, a movement that is worldwide called the church, God's universal church, a movement that seeks to present Christ to people who've never heard of him before. We happen to belong to a specific branch of that movement called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I love being part of that movement. This idea of being part of a team, of being part of something bigger than ourselves, is really important to our spiritual health. It keeps us from becoming self-absorbed and self-centered. And it steers us away from becoming ingrown and only interested in our own things. And it gives us unity and purpose. 
actually, being united this way and being focused on this goal helps make us whole. The early church learned this lesson at the hands of the Apostle Paul. We're going to read about that in 1 Corinthians 3. You're going to see Paul's writing to a group of people who are experiencing the dysfunction of division that often comes with not having the gospel goal placed in front of you. And as he does it, we're going to see a little bit about how the Christian church is supposed to work. We're going to read nine verses here. Follow along as I read. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready, yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? Or what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are co-workers in Christ's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now I'm going to begin just by giving you some important observations in this passage because this passage is just full of many good things. But one of the things that I want you to see is that for the church to work well, it must work together. That unity in the body of Christ is absolutely essential. That's why Paul begins with such strong language. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Why does he say that? Because they're divided. Because they're not on task. Because they're not looking to do what needs to be done. He says they're worldly. The actual word there is fleshly, carnal. He says they're like infants in Christ. Think of that as childish. He's wanting them to know that if the church is to function well, they need to move past that, and they need to work together. Another observation is that each person seems to have a place of service in the kingdom. I mean, in verse 9, he says, for we are co-workers in God's service. And he's talking about him and Apollos. They, they work together. But we're going to note in just a few minutes that this isn't just about missionaries working together or pastors working together. This is about everybody working together. Third, as I see this, and this is kind of a big observation, God's plan is to redeem humankind. That is what God is about doing. And we are called to join him in that. We are called to be all about the gospel, and the gospel is the good news. So serving as a campus pastor for 10 years at the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford, I discovered that a lot of Christian groups define the gospel differently than I do. Some of them define it as relieving poverty. Yeah, we're involved in this project to send cattle to this particular group. That's the gospel, sending cattle. Okay. Some of them would think of it as providing health care. These people are sick over here and we're going to provide health care for them. That's the gospel, providing health care. Drilling wells in villages. These people have no clean water. 
Children are dying there. They are dying there. Their life expectancy is 10 years shorter than it should be just because they have this polluted water. The gospel is drilling wells. Okay, those are all important things. Healthcare, drilling wells, relieving poverty. But those things are not the gospel. Here's why I say that. You can drill a well. You can relieve poverty. You can provide health care. And Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. You understand that? <laughs> you don't even need to be a Christ follower to do those things. And yet it is easy for Christians Christ's followers, to lose track of the gospel, despite the fact that it's very easy to find. The most popular verse of the Bible tells you what the gospel is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but has eternal life. The gospel, the good news, it is God's means of redemption of humankind. It is really not surprising to me the church-going people, and even Bible-based ministries forget to present the good news. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. You're a Christian, and you go to take the good news to some disadvantaged people who've never heard about Jesus, and you see this physical hardship, the water problem. You see that problem. And it is natural to want to help them. It is biblical to want to address those issues, and it is satisfying to address them. It's good to see the results. On the other hand, spiritual problems and spiritual change, that's harder to see with your natural eyes. It actually requires some spiritual eyes to see that sort of thing. Anyone can see physical suffering, but it's harder to see suffering of the soul with natural eyes. And neither you nor I can see hell with our natural eyes. And so it's easy for the gospel, the reality that God loved the world and trusting him and his son gives eternal life, it's easy for that to kind of get set aside in the face of all this that I can see with my natural eyes. Everybody knows, though, it's not an either-or issue. It's not like you either drill the well or you tell them about Jesus. We do both. We do both. But what I want to say to you this morning is it is absolutely essential that we share the gospel because that is what God came to provide. That is what it means to do missions work. And that is why we kind of church, we, we plant churches that plant churches. <laughs> Turn if you would to Acts chapter 14. We're going to read three verses there in just a moment. I guess that in the past, it was not uncommon for missionaries to go to a remote location, say to some jungle village, and to learn their language, to understand their culture, to integrate into their society, to share the gospel with them, and to start a church. And then that missionary, he then pastored that church for the rest of his life. I guess in, in times past, that was not uncommon. I guess you could even do that today, but I think there's a better way. The Alliance, like many other groups these days, sends out workers to plant churches, to train leaders, and then to move on. And how long it takes to do that varies with each group that that we serve. But that model is actually shown in Acts 14. It is what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were using when it says in verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. 
Then they moved to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And then they moved on. And then they moved on. Churches planting churches that plant churches. This is God's method of communicating his plan of redemption, the gospel. They led the people to Christ. They discipled them, taught them. They appointed elders to lead them and help them. And then they moved on. The job of a missionary is to work himself out of a job. That's what he's there for. We're disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what we do. Now, there's a lot of reasons that we do missions. Many motives for it. The first is just simple obedience. I mean, Jesus told his followers, spread the good news. In his Sermon on the Mount, and you remember we preached through Beatitudes a few months ago, that was the onset of the Sermon on the Mount. Right after he gives the Beatitudes, he says in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's not just talking to the 12 here, you know. This is a Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has intentionally put himself on a hillside so that many, many people can be gathered around him and many, many people can hear this sentence that he says, let your light shine so people know the gospel so they may glorify your Father in heaven. He's a little more directive about it in the ascension. I mean, there in Matthew 29, we find, 28 rather, we find the Great Commission. And that's when he says to the 12, I have a job for you. That's what a commission is. It's empowering someone to do a task that you have for them to do. He commissioned them and he said to them, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, there are people who might argue, yeah, that's only for the 12 because it's only the 12 that are there at the ascension. Not even the 12. We're missing Judas. He's gone by now. That's only for the 11. That's not That's not for me to disciple everybody. That's That's not my job. That thinking is wrong. That thinking is wrong because it robs you, it robs you and me of an amazing opportunity to participate in something so much bigger than ourselves. We are to let our light shine before others. The Bible teaches some plant, some water, God makes it grow. The Bible teaches some go, some send, God makes it grow. The Bible teaches some speak, some pray, God makes it grow. We do missions because of simple obedience. Jesus told us to. We also do missions because of compassion. Years ago, I knew an Alliance elder who privately said to me that he thought the Alliance emphasized missionary work too strongly. I didn't argue with him. (laughs) I just prayed for him. Sometime later, he said to me, we were sitting having lunch together, and he said, I had a weirdest dream last night, Pastor Steve. I said, what'd you dream? He said, I saw people falling into hell. And then he went and told me details I did not want to hear. And he shuddered as he related them to me. 
From then on, he was kind of on board with missionary work. God evoked within him a compassion for the lost. Look, I don't want to dream about hell. I don't want you to have a dream about hell. We get it. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. Why? Because he's compassionate. We see his compassion in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, the Lord is not, 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Compassion moves us to do missions. Now there's a third reason that we do missions. If you're Alliance, you've heard this reason before. If you're kind of new to the Alliance, you might not have heard it. It's in Matthew 24. I'd like you to turn there. This is the last time I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage of Scripture this morning. I'd really love you to see it. We do missions because we want to bring back the king. Let me just say something real straight, real clear right now. The return of Christ is a good thing. Okay? It's a good thing. Every now and then, when I hear Christians speak about the return of Christ and the signs of time, they'll say, Oh, pastor, it looks like the Lord's coming soon. Bring it. <laughs> Bring it. It's a great thing to imagine the return of Christ. Just a couple of weeks before my brother died this month, he was talking on the telephone to our sister. And he said, hey, Jane, I just wish the rapture would happen. Whether I get better or not, I don't care. I am sick of this world. And I am ready for the rapture. (laughs) Me too, Brother Glenn. Me too. Not every believer has that thought in their mind, though. I mean, maybe some feel like leaving this world would mean missing out on some things that they are kind of enjoying in this world. I felt that way when I was younger. I mean, if Christ came back when I was young, then I would miss out on driving a car when I'm 16, right? I'd miss out on having a home, getting married, rearing children, living. Jesus, don't come back just yet. I want to live. Do you see the stupidity in that sentence? Yeah. The remedy for that flawed thinking, by the way, isn't something that comes with age. It is something that comes with a greater appreciation, a more accurate understanding of who God is and what eternity with him will be like. And I want to tell you, it will beat the tar out of anything this fallen world has to offer. Anything. The second reason we might be a little hesitant to want Jesus to come back is because we have friends that don't know him. Unsaved loved ones. We're like, man, got these friends, they don't know Jesus. I don't know if I want Jesus to come back yet. I resolved that in my heart years ago, simply realizing that God is not unjust, that he will give them exactly what they need, and it's their choice what they will do with that. He will give them every opportunity they need to hear the gospel. The return of Christ, it is something that believers long for. And it's something that you can actually influence its timing. Influence its timing? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. I've read that it was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, A.B. Simpson, who first discovered this truth that's in Matthew 24. Who knows? Can't imagine it sat around for almost 2,000 years before someone else picked up on it. Nevertheless, follow along as I start reading verse 3 and I read through verse 14. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will all this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over and persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Did you hear that last verse? Read it again. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That's missions. And then the end will come. Let me tell you what that means. That means if you hunger for righteousness to reign, if you are sick of injustice, if you want to see hospitals, particularly children's hospitals, close their doors because they have no customers, if you're tired of reading headlines about people abusing vulnerable people, if you just want some peace of mind, if you're sick of sickness and pain, if you're longing for the king to return, then preach the gospel of the kingdom. Bring back the king. Bringing back the king. It's a major motivation in missions. I mean, it makes missions more important or, or, or more than pure obedience, although that would be enough. And it makes missions more than just compassion and sympathy and pity for the lost, although that's a good thing. It makes missions a vehicle through which we bring the return of the king. And we get to participate in something at a much, much higher level than anything else we could ever participate in. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to participate in something greater than anything else we could ever hope to participate in. Bringing back the king. But I want to tell you that it's going to require sacrifice. And you knew it was going to require sacrifice. And you're not afraid of sacrifice because you do it all the time. Sacrifice is not a bad thing. It's often a good thing. Often parents send their children to college so that they can have a better education. And parents still consider that a hardship. It's like, yeah, this is what I want to do for you because I love you. People sacrifice time in clearing driveways of snow. Driveways that are not their own. Why do they do that? It's not a hardship. It's a joyful sacrifice. And believers sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom and find joy in doing so. Now, you're going to have to listen carefully to really understand what I'm saying here, okay? Because I'm talking about somebody. Sometimes when I'm telling someone about my very favorite missionaries in the world and how far they live away from their parents, sometimes the response is one of pity or sympathy. And that is not what good parents want. That is not what grandparents want. And that is not what the missionaries want. Because the sacrifice is made willingly. Because they're bringing back the king. Believers willingly sacrifice to bring back the king. They sacrifice in praying. Paul's writing to a church. Remember, Paul is a missionary. He's writing to a church that he's actually been to. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, he says, Brothers and sisters, pray for us. The message of the Lord, pray that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and honored just as it was with you. 
He's asking the church to pray for him and his partner as they do missionary work. Four years ago, I showed you this picture. That is a 1984 version of something called the Alliance Prayer Manual. It wasn't a here's how to pray kind of a thing. I think of a manual as here's how to put your snowblower together. It wasn't like that. It was a directory, a list of missionaries' names and where they were. And then there was a section that said, on Monday, here's who to pray for. Pray for Africa. On Tuesday, pray for South America. On Wednesday, you get the point, right? <laughs> Today, because we have so much, so much technology, we can pray on demand. I get videos from missionaries in Africa that say, here's how to pray. I get WhatsApp messages, signal messages. I get Facebook notifications. Here's how to pray. Here's how to pray. Here's how to pray. Prayer. It's a sacrifice, a small one in the light of others made, but a sacrifice, an important one. Another way we sacrifice is through giving. That's what that missionary pledge card is for, to help you give in a systematic way. And traditionally, I can remember when I, the first year, maybe the second year I was a pastor, they sent out some information about something that the old alliance people used to think about whenever they were thinking, well, how much should I give? And naturally, you don't want to give what you are giving to your church. We've got to have electricity here. So it's over and above what I'm giving to my church. How much should, should I give? And, and here's kind of the thinking pattern they had. First, ask yourself, how much can I spare? Well, how much could I spare if I sacrificed? Well, how much could I spare if I trusted God on top of that sacrifice? Those are the kind of questions to just ask yourself this week. Talk as a family this week about it. As we bring back the king, we are called to sacrifice in prayer and giving and even in going. There's no question about it. Leaving home. Leaving family is a sacrifice. Anybody knows that. But we want to sacrifice for something meaningful. We want to make sacrifices for the right thing, for the right reason. We want to sacrifice to bring back the king. So there's this old alliance hymn called Jesus Only. Fear not, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um can't remember how the refrain goes. Jesus only, Jesus ever, Jesus all and all shall be. Savior, sanctifier, healer, glorious Lord and coming king. That was close. That was close. The verse where it speaks about coming king, each verse speaks to an aspect of the fourfold gospel. The one that speaks about coming king says this, and for Jesus we are waiting. For Jesus we are waiting. That waiting isn't like the waiting you do when you're sitting out in front of Old Navy waiting for your wife to come out. Is she ever going to be done? It's five minutes. It's turned into seven. I don't know that I can stand that, right? It's not that kind of waiting. It's more like waiting for the pie to come out of the oven. (laughs) That kind of waiting. It's like waiting for the kids to come home. It's waiting for Christmas. It's waiting for Grandma and Grandpa to stop by. For Jesus, we are waiting for an amazingly good thing. We are listening for the Advent call. And when it comes, it will be Jesus only. Jesus ever, all in all. We're waiting for Jesus. We're working for Jesus. Bringing back the King. I can hardly wait. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have that you have given us this opportunity to be united with you in this purpose of bringing back the king. 
You could do this without us. Absolutely. No question about it. But you have invited us to participate. As we enter this week of missions at Kerbinsville Alliance, I pray that we would have our hearts tuned toward you. How would you have us to participate in carrying out your great commission? It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.